Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and this is Ideas. Tonight we conclude our eight-part series, The Age of Ecology, with a programme about the many meanings of nature. We'll begin with journalist Bill McKibben, the author of The End of Nature, talking about what it means for human beings to change the weather. If you look in your insurance policy, it says that things like hurricanes and stuff are acts of God and, you know, don't bother writing to them (laughs) if your house blows down in one. But it's very unclear that anything of that sort will be an act of God in the future. We'll hear from musician and writer David Rothenberg about the difficulties of rethinking attitudes to nature. When people talk about um, new ways of understanding nature, we need a new way of conceiving of nature, we need a new way of thinking. I mean, it's, it takes a lot to be new, because if it's really new, it's going to be so new that it's going to take a long time to understand what's meant. And we'll conclude with a conversation with philosopher Erezim Kohak, the author of an inquiry into the moral sense of nature. As long as our basic attitude towards ourselves and the world remains the same attitude which produced an ecological disaster, then our attempts simply to manage more rationally, welcome though they are, are not sufficient. That we need to be rethinking the relation between humans and reality. Images of Nature, Part 8 of the Age of Ecology, written and presented by David Cayley. In the early 1980s, a writer named Jonathan Schell made a remarkable impact on the public conscience with a series of articles in the New Yorker magazine on the threat of nuclear weapons. They were called The Fate of the Earth. I had a sense of deja vu this past fall, when it suddenly seemed as if everyone I met was urging me to read an essay in the New Yorker called The End of Nature. The author was Bill McKibben, and when I did read it, I found the same portentous tone, the same terrible sense of occasion, that had given Shell's work its galvanizing impact on the reborn peace movement of the early 80s. McKibben's essay, also published as a book of the same name, is a meditation on the meaning of global warming. His argument is that nature is only nature if it confronts us as a power which human purposes cannot substantially alter. When industrialization begins to change the chemistry of the atmosphere, and therefore potentially the weather, then summer, in McKibben's slightly sinister phrase, will go extinct to be replaced by something else that will be called summer. Bill McKibben lives in the vast Adirondack wilderness of northern New York. It was partly his reflection that even this seemingly pristine place could be transformed by global warming that caused him to write his book. I visited him at his home near Johnstown, New York this spring, and we talked about the end of nature. It doesn't mean the end of the world, and it doesn't mean the end of the human species. It means the end of a way of looking at the world, a way of looking at the world where we're a one species among many and and there's something much larger than us. I think that that way of looking at the world is unfortunately becoming harder and harder to maintain, that we're becoming more and more and more dominant species, and now we're taking a quantum leap by interfering with the most fundamental forces of the natural world around us, the weather and the climate, you know, short of interfering with gravity or something like that. This is about as profound as you can get. And in so doing, we manage for the first time to alter 
or to put our boot print, you know, on every square inch of land and sea. What, for you, is the significance of this end of nature, as you've called it? Well, I mean, there's... What does it mean to right. you? It's on many different levels. Um, one that's, I think, immediately apparent to a lot of people is the, is the kind of theological level, you know? An awful lot of our ideas about our place in this world and what our, and our relation to some higher being have to do with the idea that, that, you know, there was some creator God who in some sense operated through natural forces. I mean, we still talk, if you look in your insurance policy, it says that things like hurricanes and stuff are acts of God and, you know, don't bother writing to them <laughs> if your house blows down in one. But it's very unclear that, that anything of that sort will be an act of God in the future. I mean, a hurricane, for instance, is caused by its power comes from the, the warmth of the ocean. If we raise the air temperature very much, we'll also raise the tropical sea surface temperature and quite quickly create the possibility of a hurricane half again as large as any that are physically possible now. And that won't be an act of God, that'll be an act of man. I guess in in some more personal sense for me, it's the the sense that there's no place you can go to get away from people and their effects, that there's no sphere or won't be any sphere left larger than us. And that to me is a saddening and kind of scary thought. One of the things <laughs> that's made life, especially life out here in the woods, as wonderful for me as it is, is the sense that that there are many other forms of life around us, that we're merely some one part of some great, large, complicated, humming operation. And we're threatening to reduce that to just us, to reduce it by changing the climate so we'll wipe out an enormous number of other species and things, or by tinkering with genes so that we're creating and modifying all the forms of life around us. One writer on biotechnology that I was reading recently said that, I think the quote was that, that once we've mastered genetic engineering in the fairly near future, we'll be able to turn the working of all other living things on Earth to the particular advantage of our own species. Now, to me, that's a very barren idea, you know, a sort of shopping mall kind of world where everything's ordered for our pleasure and consumption and, and whatever else. And it's much less interesting than the world we live in now, which is mysterious and where we don't understand why we're here or why anything else is here, but we yet, most of us, feel an enormous delight at at living here and at being in this world. This is partly an aside, but you habitually use the term we mm. when you're talking about this, but do you really mean we? As opposed to... They. No, I mean we. Uh, you know, I'm... How as I say... species have you wiped out oh, this well, week? I, you know, I'm, I've done my part, you know. I've, <laughs> as I say, I'm a good child of suburban America, you know, the most consumptive, commodity-intensive society that the world has ever produced, you know? Heck, just to print my book took, I shudder to think at the, you know, size of the forest that was, they needed to knock down, you know, and it's now in 
11 it did in 11 languages so i assume in you know each part of the world there's a small grove of trees that you know i personally have taken down that's the thing it's not that that any of us is particularly to blame you know we didn't until very recently have any idea that what we were doing threatened things on any large scale we're born into these patterns i mean we now have to figure out ways to get out of them and to learn to live other ways but no it's definitely i am a major league hypocrite and i and i realize it (laughs) the thing that struck me about your essay first of all was that i i saw it as a uh, as an argument for limits i felt like i was walking with you in that way but i couldn't follow your idea of nature as something not containing human beings something Uh, that somehow nature is tainted uh, no. If a human presence is detectable in it, then it's no longer nature. No, it's it's wilderness might be a better word for if you're sort of talking about uh, those things. It's very clear that human beings are a part of nature. You know that we and and there's nothing wrong with that. As I say, we've needed to change nature around us, and and that's seems to me perfectly permissible. Just as it's perfectly permissible for the beaver, you know, who lives up Mill Creek here, to build a dam. It's less permissible when it threatens to flood my basement, but but the um, but there need to be places. I mean, we we're the one species that possess the ability, if we choose to use it, to go everywhere and be everywhere and dominate everything. There's no other species that can have that kind of impact. If we want to have a world that has anything but us in it, we do need to to begin. I think to limit ourselves in ways both practical and philosophical we need to kind of give up the dream of living in a perfect world where we live forever free of sickness and you know where we have absolutely unlimited comfort and convenience and things like that i'm not even sure that these are treasures worth having in in their ultimate sense but they're certainly sort of what we've been aiming at and now we're finding that at best they're going to lead us, I think, to a kind of sterile and barren world. And at worst, they're going to create a planet that's very uncomfortable and very inconvenient and, and very hard to live on. I want to know what you think the implications of this are for environmental politics. Because it, it's always seemed to me that once things are at this pass, that the solutions uh, can intensify the problem. You cite some pretty zany examples of that in your book, actually, with people wanting to zap fluorocarbons with lasers and so on, right? Yes, or cover cover the ocean with styrofoam chips to reflect the sunlight back out to space. Yeah, those are kind of the ludicrous examples. But the um, the temptation is to continue following the same paradigm, the same general path, and you know manage things more wisely than we're managing them now which is a better idea than managing them badly you know it's better to but it seems to me that in that in some sense our goal should be to have a world where eventually we don't have to manage it um and where we're merely one part of it one and not an overwhelming part of it so i think we need to sort of question the idea that it's always going to be some new technology new way of doing things that saves us and remember that we have already have a lot of good ideas 
about how to live in this world, and we just don't make use of all of them. Journalist Bill McKibben, the author of The End of Nature. of nature that's dying, this vision that is no more, is the luxury of saying, here is nature, here is civilization. I will walk between them when I please. That's, that's what's ending. David Rothenberg is a musician, that's his music in the background, and a graduate student in philosophy at Boston University. He's worked at The Ecologist magazine in England and collaborated with Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness the godfather of a philosophical school called Deep Ecology. Rothenberg's writings raise questions about the meanings we associate with nature, and he thinks that the environmental movement needs to be grounded in such questions and not facile answers. People expect a lot from this idea without thinking too much about what it is. It becomes a kind of shallow religion, you know, a vague thin idea, thin religion, I guess we talked about it before, that there's just this vague idea that caring about the earth or paying attention to interconnections will solve our problems. And that, that you know, interrelationship is, is a powerful idea, but it, it's quite a vague idea. It's only a place to begin. And people taking ecology, you know, starting, which, which started as a new direction in, in biological science, and then just said, oh, ecology is the word, ecology is the answer, without taking the time to realize what needs to be developed and, you know, what's the question exactly? What are we trying to answer with this? And, and some of this spills over into, into the thinking about the new paradigm, where people say, ah, everything's changing, we're at the verge of a new paradigm. And then you often read the entire parameters of this new paradigm as if it's already here, as if we could just switch over by flipping the channel or something. But, you know, if we really are at a changing point in our in our thought, then we don't know the answer. You know, we've got to work more carefully on, on, on specific changes and on specific questions rather than just saying this is the way it is and we already know enough if only we could implement it. I think that's too naive. There's a lot of, a lot of problems here. We don't really know very much about you know, where we should redirect society. And that to speak of a new paradigm is generally seems to me to bring with it this, this false sense of security that we already know where we're going. One of the concepts that David Rothenberg wants to query is the idea of nature. He's not satisfied, for example, with Bill McKibben's account of nature. McKibben belongs to the romantic tradition of Henry David Thoreau, which opposes nature and civilization. He sees nature as a sublime teacher and deplores humanity's ever-present bootprint, just as Thoreau longed for a wilderness I cannot put my foot through. Rothenberg wants a more flowing, less divided image of the world. Our civilization developed in a certain way such that we could, we could place a wall around it and say, beyond this is nature. And it starts that this nature beyond the wall is something frightening and negative and evil. And then we begin to see it as antidote to the problems of our own world. Say, ah, let us escape into nature. And I, th I think that's another part of, of this, this superficial worldview, which I, you know, certainly feel as much caught up in as anyone else because I love going out into the wilderness 
this place bereft of other people and other, you know, cars and shopping malls and no gas stations. And But I want that because, you know, my culture and civilization is not connected enough to the world which surrounds it. So I need to escape it into some imaginary realm that's off on its own. And But I think, you know, it's it's part of the delusion that, that, that I need to think that way. That's part of what's wrong with, with the civilization that I live in. And that another way to live would, would, would feel a greater connection to the, to, the, to the world around all the time and not think that one escapes into it and back from it. And I, where I feel just as cultured or civilized out there in the woods or in the desert than I would be at home writing about all this stuff sitting at a computer. We, we don't know exactly how to talk about these things without dividing them up, which is a big frustration. Rothenberg is currently at work on his PhD thesis on the philosophy of technology. His research follows the way in which the meaning of nature modulates with technological change. What I want to examine is how technology changes the world, both by allowing us to build things and change our physical environment, as well as letting us think about the world in a new way. It's tremendously powerful in redirecting our thoughts in different directions. And throughout the course of this investigation, we start by looking at very simple tools and, and uh, how impressed we humans get with things that we can build that work. We take something, a tool, a simple machine, we, we, we see that it works, then we begin to exp- imagine the world working in the same way. So that even from the very first glimpses of the way the world is conceived, it seems to be like a machine, like our very simple machines, and then like our more complicated machines. At the same time, you know, this is technology as it develops changing what nature means. Because first, you know, Heraclitus says, oh, the universe is like a bow and a lyre. It's tension and release. And then Plato talks about... uh, the world's as if spun on a potter's wheel and shaped by the creator. And then later on we have Descartes and Leibniz saying it's all like clockwork. The world is like clockwork. And then in the 18th century, nature is, is you know, it's like an engine. There's self-regulating systems. And this becomes later into cybernetics, which comes out of mechanical self-correcting mechanisms. And then we have the computer, which becomes a kind of technology that doesn't even have a material it, it's, it's, we use it apart from its material construction. It's, it's a way of organizing ideas. You know, when technology becomes that abstract in its use, it changes the way we think about things which we can't build or we can't make. Things like the waterfalls or the spread of forest fires can you know, be simulated with, with digital thinking. That has nothing to do with the way it actually happens, but because we notice certain patterns, we think we can explain it. You know, it's not that nature is now a machine and wasn't seen as a machine before. It's just machines have become more complicated. And um, they threaten, perhaps, to explain more. On the other hand, as I'm reading all these various theories that have been put together about technology over the centuries, it seems that everyone has always wanted technology to be natural and be like nature. Even people like Francis Bacon, you know, considered the arch-villain by many eco-freaks of the modern era, thought of as the man who turned humanity against nature, he too wanted technology to fit in, to help us fit into the world. You know, it's all, it's all there. It's the same dream, only what nature is keeps changing. And so um, 
we keep going in you know, different directions. And it, well, the disturbing thing about that, this is that, you know, I start out, I started my whole research into this with the idea that I'd explain all these things and then emerge with this, still with this victorious idea that somehow we can look for what is right in what is natural, as Aristotle encouraged us to, and that we can we can use nature in this way. Only now that I'm about halfway done, I'm just, I'm just no longer sure what nature means. It's just being twisted and transformed so much. Rothenberg's inquiries into the meaning of nature came to my attention through an article called Ways Towards Mountains, which appeared in a Canadian eco-philosophy journal called The Trumpeter. The article investigates a famous letter by the 14th century poet Petrarch concerning his ascent of Mount Ventoux near Avignon. Petrarch's climb is reputed to be the first case of a European climbing a mountain purely for the experience of doing so. But when he reaches the summit, he rejects the elation he feels and concludes that there is nothing wonderful except the soul, which, when great itself, finds nothing great outside itself. Then, in truth, Petrarch goes on in this letter, I was satisfied I had seen enough of the mountain. Beside this text, Rothenberg sets another, the Sansukyo, or Mountains and Rivers Sutra, by the 13th century Zen master Dogen. He gave this as a lecture at, at 12 midnight on November 3rd, 1240. It's exactly written down. It was to all his students. They were staying up late just to listen to him. And he doesn't talk directly about an experience climbing a mountain, but just makes certain statements about mountains that try and connect them to things that we as humans are and can do. The basic image which the rest of the talk is centered around is the following. The blue mountains are constantly walking. The stone woman gives birth to a child in the night. The rest of the talk sort of enigmatically weaves in and around that image, that idea. Mountains, Dogen says, lack none of their proper virtues because they're constantly at rest and constantly walking. We should study this virtue of walking. The walking of mountains is like that of men. Don't doubt that the mountains walk simply because they not, do not appear to walk like humans. He who doubts that the mountains walk does not yet understand his own walking. It's not that he doesn't walk, but he doesn't yet understand has not yet clarified his walking. This is a vision of a mountain somehow alive in a way that we are alive. Not different from us, but like us. Like Petrarch, um, Dogen says that, you know, if we refuse to um, believe or participate in this perfect, these perfect virtuous mountains, uh, we're lacking in virtues. We are imperfect. What Petrarch refuses to do is leap to the notion that the mountains are perfect beyond the limitations of the human soul. This is because unlike humans, presumably, the mountains can be calmly at motion and at rest. Nature doesn't need to reason between these two states. It contains both. Now, this isn't, isn't just an Asian idea. I think it's a, a common but somewhat dangerous simplification to say that there's something right about the way the East understands nature and there's something wrong about the way the West does. I mean, there's specific people who believe specific things and think specific things, and we can find images that are inspiring from both at different times. You know, Plato, somewhere, describes wisdom as touching the motion or stream of things, and that's the same kind of thing Dogen is getting at here.
Now, the language of, of um, the mountain and river sutra, the Sansukyo, is not the kind of thing that we would like to call logical or, or straight philosophical the way um, argument is supposed to be written. But most of the great philosophy is, is like that too. You know, it's all written in strange enigmatic ways and people are trying to pretend that it's logical and clear, but actually it's all forcing us to try and get outside the strictures of the thought we're used to and think in new ways. And language isn't really prepared to do this, so it's all a struggle one way or the other. Plato, Aristotle, Spinoza... And they're all twisting language in different ways, so it's frustrating. But for some, in some sense, it has to be written in this difficult way. Though often I wish it were not so. Well, Dogen ends by um, saying that you know mountains are not just things for us to see on the horizon, but uh, as for mountains, there are mountains hidden in jewels. There are mountains hidden in marshes. Mountains hidden in the sky. Mountains hidden in mountains. There is a study of mountains hidden in hiddenness. Okay, this is, this is what inspired me to write this whole thing, just this one quote, to try and figure out what, what could remain of the meaning of the word mountain after it's been twisted in so many different ways, after it's been hidden in so many different places, after it's been taken away from where we're used to climbing on it and touching it and, and seeing it, now it's everywhere. You know, does it mean anything? And that's where I began to investigate what mountain might mean as idea. And this began to resonate, you know, the way images in, in poems are supposed to resonate with, 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 with other experiences in, in, in my own limited experience that got me thinking about these ideas. And one of them also in this paper is this, this uh, advertisement on a bus in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> which was a poem, which just said, uh, I wish I could look at a mountain for what it is and not as a comment on my life. And that's a poem by David Ignatow. And that, you know, that idea has been with me for years, wondering what it, what it means <laughs> and whether it's a good idea even, since all of this is looking at mountains as comments on our lives in some way, but not without looking at our own lives as comments on the mountains at the same time. He wants to get beyond the, the situation of, of modern man and modern woman trying to, to make everything make sense for us, for me, for you, rather than looking at things the other way around. He's, 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 he feels stuck in a place where Petrarch is stuck, you know, nothing greater than the soul, nothing outside the soul, nothing outside itself, never mind the mountain, you know. It's just something that sends me back within and he's saying, I wish I could get beyond that. Whether Dogen gets beyond that is another question, since we're not exactly sure what he's after. But one thing which he may be after is the, is the notion of mountain as idea. You know, before it is, is, is something we, we see or climb or identify, there's this idea, the rise and the fall, the peak, the valley. All these, all these are, are ideas that are found in all parts of experience and thought, you know. Maybe it's wrong to ask which comes first, but that, that maybe this is the most profound meaning of, of mountain, that, it, it, that it's, it's a concept which flows through all kinds of experience, even things that seem flat. The world we live in is, is um, it's not separate from what, from what we, we think about, and, and it's, our ideas are not separate, by, by the wor separate from the world in which we live you know, there. One can't think of self-realization without the environment. 
one can't think of human thought without the world as it's experienced and as it's changed. I mean, that's the most basic point of this. You know, don't think you can be anything without the world. be able to, to tell from this whole discussion that there's this part of me that's entirely suspicious of, of all attempts to discuss these things in words. There's a whole other side of my life where I play music and try and compose music and explore some of these same questions in a medium which doesn't have any arguments, which doesn't have any conclusions, but has, has its own form of expression. Musician and writer David Rothenberg. Erezim Kohak is a professor of philosophy at Boston University. In fact, he's been David Rothenberg's teacher there, and Rothenberg his teaching assistant, though I came to know of them independently of each other. Kohak writes in the tradition of Czech philosophy, which goes all the way back to René Descartes' great opponent in the 17th century, John Comenius, a tradition that has not accepted the split between nature and mind that Descartes introduced into the mainstream of European philosophy. In 1984, Kohak published The Embers and the Stars, an inquiry into the moral sense of nature. The book is a poetic and personal account of the author's own discovery of meaning in the world around his rural New Hampshire home. But it's also an effort to put environmental concern into an adequate philosophical framework. Practice is always an idea in action. And what I am doing there, I'm not giving prescriptions on how to clean up rivers or how to change modes of consumption. But I'm very much convinced that, that we have an ecological crisis, not only because there's an awful lot of us, five times as many as there were when, uh, when I was born, and I don't know how many times it will be before I die, but also because of the way in which we have oriented towards nature. And it seems to me that environmentalism can now uh, take two general directions. One of them is more rational management of nat natural resources. Here the assumption is, yes, that humans are basically the exploiters of a lifeless reality. And the question is only how to exploit it most rationally so it would last minimally for our lifetime. It seems to me that uh, you know, while I welcome, no matter what the motivations are, I'm always happy when somebody uses more environmentally sound materials and practices, I welcome it. If the devil is divided against himself, he will not stand. Uh, but my concern is that as long as our basic attitude towards ourselves and the world remains the same attitude which produced an ecological disaster, then our attempts simply to manage more rationally, welcome though they are, are not sufficient. That we need to be rethinking the relation between humans and reality. And this seems to me that what I'm trying to do here is to provide 
persons with environmental concerns a conception of nature and the place of humans in it, which can provide a more adequate guidance than the arbitrary human deciding about dead raw materials. Environmentalism, for Kohak, faces a choice of worldviews. His philosophy recognizes other purposes in nature than our own. Modern European philosophy has not. Uh, the conception of reality with which we operate today and which is so deeply ingrained in us that we're not even aware of it uh, is indebted heavily to the early 17th century, uh, to René Descartes, and it conceives of reality as bifurcated between a mind, a res cogitans, which is in no intrinsic sense a part of the remainder, the remainder being an aggregate of res extendes, of objects which have no properties other than spatial extension, mathematical or and causal ordering. That is, this is the so-called world of dead matter. Against this, I was trying to revive a conception of reality as value-laden and meaningfully ordered, a reality of which the subject, and all subject beings, all purposive uh, beings, living beings, are an intrinsic part and which is therefore a world that is both meaningful and valuable. Mm -hmm. so, so that value is not something that humans impose upon the world, but which the world already has as a life's world. For Kohak, it is no easy thing to throw off a philosophy, because it confronts us not only as a body of ideas, but as a set of perceptual habits. To perceive the life world around us, we have to unlearn our concepts, a procedure Kohak's phenomenological tradition calls bracketing. What I'm concerned with simply breaking a particular habit of perceiving. Uh, when a human being perceives the world, he or she does not perceive it as dead matter. This is something that we have to be taught. And in our lived experience, that remains an artificial perception. We perceive the world as meaningful. I used to do an experiment for my students. I would bring in a small stuffed bear. Um, I would introduce him to the class, uh, tell something of his personal history, where he got his degrees and uh, what he has done since. And I would put him on, his, on my desk and uh, um, forget about him. Uh, about five minutes later, I would take some notes out of my briefcase start to place them on my desk, the bear would be in the way and I would say, let's get this thing out of here. And I would swing my arm as if to hit the bear aside. The entire class, and here I'm dealing with adults, advanced graduate students, instinctively reacted, don't hit that cute little bear. Now, clearly, Theoretically, they know that this, uh, that uh, his name was Koki because he was stuffed with coconut husk. That Koki is just a piece of cloth stuffed with uh, crushed coconut husks. Yet what they actually perceive is a meaningful entity to which they relate, uh, I don't like the word, but I use it anyway, emotionally, empathically, as well as uh, in strict utilitarian terms. And what I'm trying to suggest by the term bracketing, set aside the learned ways of perceiving the world as dead matter there for your use, 
and see if you can recover again your actual perception of the world as a community of beings to whom you are meaningfully related. Uh, other writers would uh, invoke uh, who? The Navajos, for instance, who have a very strong sense for the rhythm of nature. I am a man of the West, and so I use Husserl's concept of bracketing, setting aside. But the purpose here is to recover the actual experience from the heavy overlay of theoretical interpretation. Because we are all convinced that the bear is uh, cloth and coconut husks, but in the world of our experience, that is not the case. Is there, in fact, such a thing as our actual experience, apart from the theoretical constructs we use? Uh, this would be the question that a philosopher would say, and I would say very definitely so. Here I would invoke Paul Ricoeur and his lovely statement in uh, The Rule of Metaphor, something must be for something to be said. The moment which I, that I start speaking about my experience, I am, of course, dressing it in a set of particular terms, and this is why I would say the truth is never the sentence. Truth is not the property of sentences. Truth is the reality to which a sentence seeks to point me. So that, uh, j just as with our doctrinal statements, a particular creed points me to the truth, but it is not itself the truth. And this is why the Church can have a range of creeds from um, the Apostles' Creed all the way down to the 39 Articles of Religion, the most definite statement, of course. Uh, and we can say none of them is the truth, yet they point to a truth. And I would say, yeah, no, uh, we cannot claim that our discourse ever captures, contains the truth but our life does. And in this sense, I am an unabashed foundationalist. Yes, I'm convinced that there is reality. And if you want an argument tossed in, I would point out that many people who do not use conceptual uh, languages nonetheless show clear evidence of highly differentiated experience. For instance, cows, goats, dogs, uh, porcupines. They do not act as if the experience were meaningless. They act as if they could orient to it, respond appropriately. Yet they do not use languages. And for this reason, yes, I believe there is a lived experience. Experience is not a product of uh, l'écriture. L'écriture, writing, is a term which takes on a particular color in the philosophy of Jacques Derrida. It stands for the idea that the world we confront is never simply experience, but always already a text. And for Derrida and the postmodernists, there is nothing outside of the text. Kohak disagrees. The ultimate referent of my knowledge is not a text as uh, Derrida would have it, uh, and all the postmodernists, uh, Lyotard, Deleuze, uh, among the Czechs, Bielohradsky, but rather that there is an experience about which I write my texts. The moment I speak about it, it is always experience as conceptualized. I always tell a story about it. 
but I want to claim that there is something about which I speak. I do not speak only about my speaking. Against the French claim, uh, starting with Foucault, and very clearly in someone like Derrida, that the bottom line, our bottom referent, is always already a text. So Derrida and his disciples are still within the Cartesian framework. Uh, very much so. Modern, uh, postmodernism appears to me as the reductio ad absurdum of modernity. As they define, as they define modernity, really uh, the Cartesian scheme, what they do is to point out that there is a fundamental contradiction built into modernity's basic conception, that of the subject knowing and controlling a meaningless world, that in such a world, truth is always the subject's invention imposed upon the world. If reality has no shape in itself, neither value nor uh, meaning, if reality is only so much rolled out dough, and my mind is the cookie cutter, then the shapes which I know will be always shapes which my mind imposed upon it. Therefore, the postmodernists point out that the whole claim that we are discovering the truth is an illusion. And I would add, within the Cartesian framework, they are absolutely right. If what they are attacking is the conception of the subject, not as an integral part of reality, but as a pure mind observing a meaningless object, then it seems to me the attack is justified. Against this, I would very much present the conception of the human, uh, I shan't use the term subject, but of the human as integrally an incarnate part of this world. And this is why, never having been a Cartesian, never having been modern, I have no need to be postmodern. I am continuing in the tradition that starts with Comenius and that I now pick up in Husserl. When you earlier used the example of your violence to the teddy bear and the horror of your students, mm -hmm. you, you gave that example to say that we begin with the assumption that the world is meaningful, I think, right? That we I learn mean, our Cartesianism in I, a sense. I would not say we begin with the, uh, I would not say we begin with the assumption. This is not yet an assumption. Assumption is that we begin with the experience of the world as meaningful and not only as meaningful for me. You know, why is it that uh, most humans will instinctively draw back if I'm walking along the path and there is a, a flower growing there, a trillium? We will break stride rather than to step on it. Why? Or uh, there is a lizard there. Yes, there are people who step on lizards. But most of us, our first impulse is to treat them with a certain respect not because of their utility for us, but a, um, I don't want to say instinctive, but I would say pre-reflective sense that being simply as being is good, that being already has a meaning, a value, a truth to it, not simply the property of extension, simple mere existence in space. If then from the beginning we assume that we are confronting other subjects in nature, how is it that we learn our Cartesianism without ever studying philosophy or reading Descartes for the most part? 
uh, it is built all around us. Look at the way in which uh, child psychologists will tell you that a child has to mature to learn to make the distinction between humans to whom one kind of behavior is appropriate and teddy bears to whom that behavior is partially appropriate, this is why the term transitional objects, and things. A child is taught that yes, you are considerate of a person, but you crush a, uh, crush a paper cup. That Cartesianism is built very much into the context in which we live, and part of uh, growing up, we would say, is learning to differentiate between people whom we treat with respect and things which we use. A, uh, a, a child or an adult who feels pained uh, at the sight of, all right, we'll study with teddy bears. Teddy bears being, a teddy bear being crushed by a dumpster. I, we regard this as sentimental, immature, and inappropriate. It shows lack of adulthood. Um, the similar procedure was used in the early days when uh, the German Schutzstaffeln, the SS, were still given a rigorous training. Uh, they were to raise a, raise a puppy, train it, and then take a knife and cut its throat. If the man hesitated, he obviously was not mature enough to be a member of the Waffen-SS. We, uh, we don't, you don't have to study philosophy. We live in a world in which we are, uh, which is conditioned by the perception that of differential treatment. Be respectful of humans, but not of animals, or somewhat to animals, but not to the effect of refraining from eating them, or worrying over much about the practices in uh, uh, food production, and uh, recycling, until very recently we tended to regard as uh, sign of uh, personal peculiarity. You know, it was undignified to collect the beer cans. I have never stood on my dignity. I have better things to stand on, so I always have collected beer cans. Erezim Kohak does not believe that we can touch the reality of things simply by revising our concepts. We need also to change our circumstances. How, for example, can we learn the meaning of night if we live always in the glare of technology's perpetual daylight. Our philosophy depends on our surroundings. What I would argue is that we first experience, then philosophize. And I would say, yes, on the basis of the experience of an artifact, artifactual, a world of artifacts, we create a philosophy in which humans appear as the source of all meaning, source of all value, because when I'm surrounded, uh, as in this room, every one of the objects here, none of it was created, none of it grew, none of it has any agenda of its own. All of it exists solely as my creation, where my stands for hum collective humanity, human creation, and for my use. The sole purpose of the lamp, of the chair, they would be worthless if it weren't for me to sit, uh, if, there, if there was not I to sit upon them or to use the illumination. On the other hand, when I'm in a context of what Aristotle would have called physis, the living world, and the tree has its own agenda. It doesn't need me. 
Even if I go away, it's going to continue growing as the apple trees whose people died out a century ago, the apple trees on my land. They go on bearing their apples and feeding the deer. I, uh, the porcupine has his own agenda. So I would argue the context teaches us particular way of interacting, which we then articulate as a philosophy. And the philosophy which we articulate, if our, if our model experience of reality is the disposable styrofoam cup, of course the philosophy which I'm going to find most persuasive is one which makes a distinction between humans, the masters, or it probably would be man, the master, uh, homo mensura, and the disposable world. The Embers and the Stars is one of a growing number of books which tries to foster a more philosophical mood within environmentalism. But the book is not otherwise typical. Kohak, for example, definitely doesn't share Deep Ecology's view of humanity as a plain citizen in life's community. I am very keenly aware of the special task of human beings and I'm very much convinced that unless we are able to perform a special service, we can in no way justify the special demands that we make on this earth. We're just too expensive to be just plain citizens. I, for the money that the earth is paying us, so to speak, we had better perform a little more than the woodchuck. Uh, much though I love woodchucks and even beavers, and uh, in spite of the devastation they have just wrought on my birches. Uh, yes, here I do see a distinctive human calling, but I would not say that this makes us more valuable. I think this makes us more obligated. Another aspect of radical environmentalism about which Kohak is uneasy is a tendency to see nature in mystical terms. To Kohak, as a Christian, nature is our fellow creature, not our creator. I am also... Uh, very much aware of the danger that irrationalism poses. You know, I was born in 1933. Some of my earliest memories uh, is the German occupation of my country, uh, Nazism, which people forgot about, and this, uh, uh, they but, uh, wrap it up with fascism as if it were the same thing. But the Nazi cult of the old pagan gods uh, there is a danger in it. I want to retain a clear moral dimension. I do not want to become a nature worshipper. It seems, yes, I want to become, together with nature, a worshipper of the holy. But I don't want to worship nature. It is not Deus sive natura, uh, Spinoza, God, that is to say, nature. No, it is not. Nature is not an object of worship, of respect, yes, of worship. That's scary. Erezim Kohak's philosophy does not speak about the environment. It speaks about the life world. The environment is an abstraction. The life world, what we actually experience. And it's in our experience, and not in the environment, he says finally, that we must look for answers. I am delighted that we are becoming conscious of environment, but as long as we think that there is a problem of the environment, we will not solve it. We are the problem. It seems to me that environmentalism has to learn 
to think not only of how to manipulate the environment for its own benefit, you know, even biocentrically, but also what kind of being ought to be, ought humans to be, in order to be compatible with a world. I don't think we should stop being human, but that we ought to be thinking not only about how to manage the environment, but rather what are we doing on this earth? What are we all about? So, if you want a final reflection, I would say, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou shouldst care? On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the final program in our series, The Age of Ecology. Heard on tonight's program were Erezin Kohak, David Rothenberg, and Bill McKibben. The series was written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Technical operations, Lorne Tulk. Producer, Jill Eisen. You can get a printed transcript of this eight-part series, send a check or money order, to Ideas Transcripts Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We also have a free reading list to supplement this series, and you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Monday night on Ideas, Samuel Beckett. I hope you'll join me. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>